Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Welcome to uh, this episode of NeuroPodCases. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Shubh Biswas. Um, uh, Dr. Biswas is one of the consultant neuroradiologists at the Walton Centre, and he's kindly given us his time today to have a chat with us about dementia and more specifically about imaging and its role in the diagnosis of the common dementias. Thank you, Dr. Biswas, for joining us today. Hi, thanks, Viraj. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So, um, so uh, should we get started? Should I start with a with a, a case? We're going to talk about a few cases today, and perhaps you can uh, show us their imaging and um, yeah. highlight the salient aspects. Great, great. So, the first case is of a seventy-two-year-old uh, gentleman who uh, has about a two or three-year history of progressive cognitive complaints. Mm-hmm. It started off with um, difficulty in sort of visuospatial tasks. Um, he would find that he wouldn't be able to navigate his way home if he was going into town um, and also struggle with putting the right bits of cutlery in the right drawers. Um, Progressively this started affecting his short-term memory and so he's presented to the cognitive clinic. So in this sort of case Dr Biswas, um, what role does imaging play? Yeah so uh, the question of course is why do we need to image in a patient uh, who has been having uh, cognitive decline. Now, uh, traditionally, uh, the role of imaging was to exclude any treatable cause of cognitive decline. For instance, a patient with subdural hematoma. So you can see uh, an example of a patient with subdural hematoma. The MRI demonstrates this bilateral large collections along the cerebral convexities and uh, chronic subdural hematoma, patient with uh, chronic subdural bleeds, they do present with cognitive decline. So in, it is quite treatable surgically. Similarly, if you consider a patient who might have presented with cognitive problems and urinary incontinence and ataxia, and on imaging, we see dilated ventricles like this, we would consider normal pressure hydrocephalus as the cause, and therefore refer the patient to the neurosurgeon for appropriate therapy, surgical therapy, which should which may mean draining the CSF or putting a a, a ventricular shunt to reduce the uh, volume of CSF. And very, very rarely a patient may have a very slow growing neoplasm, uh, which may lead to cognitive decline. Uh, But this is extremely rare. I don't think in my practice I have come across anybody like that. But uh, traditionally, this was the role of imaging to rule out surgically treatable causes of dementia. However, we have moved on. Things are no longer the same. And uh, what we now focus on is pattern recognition. Is there a definite pattern in imaging which can lead us to to diagnose a specific type of dementia? Now, uh, why is it important? Because different dementias, different types of dementias have different clinical courses. Um, they may have different patterns of symptoms, and they may have different response to different uh, therapeutic interventions. So it is important that we know what type of dementia it is to guide appropriate pharmacotherapy. Say, for example, uh, if a patient uh, has uh, Alzheimer's, uh, we may consider giving 
uh, cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, if a patient has, say, vascular dementia, we may have to take steps uh, to modify the vascular risk factors. And similarly, if a patient has, say, for example, Lewy body dementia, and uh, if we administer antipsychotics in such patients, it may have severe adverse effects. So, you know, it's important um, to know what pattern, what type of dementia the patient has to guide the appropriate therapy. And also, it, it gives a diagnosis to the patients and their carriers. They can um, plan things accordingly. Um, you know, uh, lifestyle modifications can be made accordingly. And this is also very important for research. The imaging pattern is very important uh, for research purposes. So if we know uh, from imaging what pattern of dementia it is, we can potentially recruit the patients for future research. So uh, we have moved on from just rule out type of scans to a, a more thorough, comprehensive um, imaging um, system to identify uh, different types of dementia. So with that background, I'll just touch upon uh, a, a normal uh, looking MRI. Um, so this is a coronal uh, T2-weighted flare imaging. Uh, a particular uh, type of uh, sequence uh, which suppresses CSF signal. Um, and it can show the um, uh, abnormalities in the brain parenchyma very well. This is a normal scan. I'm not expecting any abnormality. However, um, the reason I'm showing you this particular slice is because I want to show the hippocampus. So this is the right hippocampus, this is the left hippocampus, and this is what you would expect in a normal individual. This is the parahippocampal gyrus on the left side, this is the parahippocampal gyrus on the right side. And these little tiny dark areas are the temporal horns of the lateral ventricles. So you see the lateral ventricles here, and these are the temporal horns of the lateral ventricles. Now, if we keep this picture in mind and then look at the scan of the patient Viraj has uh, presented to us, uh, the difference will be very clear. So let's have a look at the scan of the patient uh, which has been presented to us. So this is the scan of the patient who has severe loss of volume of the hippocampi bilaterally, almost symmetrical. Also, you can see loss of volume of the parahippocampal gyri, and you see the loss of volume is demonstrated by the widening of the sulci as well. Now, there is background loss of brain volume, of course, there is widening of the sulci, but the degree of volume loss of the mesial temporal structures are is, is disproportionately more compared to the loss of volume of the rest of the brain. And because of the loss of volume of the hippocampi, the temporal horns are quite prominent. They are quite dilated. Now, if I keep both the scans together, uh, it will be much easier to appreciate the difference. So here you see the hippocampi, which are of normal volume. Here they are shrunk. Similarly, the parahippocampal gyri, you can see nice and uh, chunky. They are shriveled and the temporal horns, which are barely visible uh, in a normal scan, 
are very much dilated. On the topic of Alzheimer's disease, it might be worth mentioning about a slightly different pattern of uh, um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, radiological pattern of uh, Alzheimer's disease, usually seen in patients who present um, slightly earlier in life and previously uh, they uh, were termed uh, as having pre-senile dementia. Now, in such patients, what we generally see, this is of course a CT scan, but it is good enough for uh, demonstrating structural changes. You'll see loss of volume in the parietal lobes. Okay, so here you see the CSF uh, spaces are quite capacious. This is because the uh, sulci have dilated due to volume loss in the parietal lobes. Uh, and you can see I've just gone one slice behind uh, posteriorly, and you can see the widening of the sulci. And compared with the rest of the brain, uh, the rest of the brain is not too bad, actually. Again, I go further behind, and you can see almost towards the occipital lobe, uh, the sulci are widened, and there is uh, quite significant loss of volume of the uh, parietooccipital gyri. Now, this is uh, almost uh, characteristic of early onset Alzheimer's. So this is uh, what we call the parietal lobe atrophy pattern in early um, Alzheimer's. Besides structural imaging, which is uh, done by um, MRI and CT, functional or molecular imaging or radionuclide imaging does play a very important role. OK, now uh, the utility of uh, functional imaging where functional imaging trumps over structural imaging is that it can reveal the metabolic abnormalities much earlier before structural changes set in. OK, so there are basically two forms of functional imaging. One is PET scan, which assesses the perfusion in the brain and HMPAO is the agent which is used or a PET scan, FDG PET scan, which demonstrates metabolism, glucose metabolism. I don't want to go into the details, but if you remember these two particular techniques, SPECT scan, which demonstrates perfusion, and FDG PET, which demonstrates uh, glucose, that should suffice uh, for this uh, particular talk. Now, another patient with cognitive impairment, um, this is a different patient, you see, there is not much in form of structural uh, imaging. There is no, uh, there's barely any uh, mesial temporal volume loss. However, when this patient went for SPECT scan, you can see there are a lot of areas demonstrating perfusion deficits, mainly in the temporal and the parietal regions. So this is the patient with Alzheimer's. So just to illustrate how uh, functional imaging can be uh, useful. Over the last uh, decade or so, amyloid imaging uh, has come up. And uh, how is it useful? Now, if you just go back to the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is characterized by, as we know, deposition of abnormal deposition of uh, beta amyloid. Um, formation of neurofibrillary tangles and neuronal loss. So if we can demonstrate the abnormal deposition of beta amyloid 
by imaging that might help us uh, in diagnosing uh, Alzheimer's. That's the theory. And uh, with that theory in mind, there has been, um, if, you know, there has been several new uh, amyloid binding agents which have come up. One such agent is fluorobetapid, and uh, F18 fluorobetapid PET uh, can be used uh, to uh, help in diagnose, uh, diagnosing Alzheimer's. And what you see here is there is increased uptake of this particular agent uh, by the beta amyloid uh, in the cerebral hemispheres bilaterally, so much so that the gray-white matter differentiation is uh, is almost lost. Compare this with a, a in a patient uh, who has got uh, normal uh, findings. So this particular technique may be useful. I have to uh, give you a word of caution. Um, functional imaging or radionuclide imaging should be used if there is difficulty in diagnosing uh, the particular condition. Okay, structural imaging, yes, very, very useful, but uh, functional imaging, radionuclide imaging should not be adopted um, at the first instance. It has to be considered if there is um, a, a dilemma, uh, if it is not entirely clear cut uh, whether what type of dementia it is, and that can be useful. So a bit of discretion is important. Okay, so that's pretty much about uh, um, imaging in uh, Alzheimer's disease, but in a nutshell. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Biswas. Very thorough. Um, yeah, and I think that's uh, very important to highlight that um, really the all, all of this process, the diagnostic process, starts with the clinical history, uh, uh, an experienced clinician making sure that the clinical history matches with what we think the diagnosis might be. And, and in the vast majority of cases, MRI is plenty to make the diagnosis. And as you've as you quite rightly um, given us the, the full rundown of the other functional imaging that, we, that can be performed, I think it's important to highlight that in the vast majority of cases, that's not often necessary. Certainly not, certainly not in current clinical practice. You know, 10 years from now, we may be speaking differently, but, but currently those are, those are for select cases only. Absolutely, yeah. Correct. Definitely. So uh, it's important to bear in mind that uh, in most of the cases, it's a clinical diagnosis and imaging is only aiding you to uh, confirm the diagnosis or exclude um, some other pathology uh, and help you to establish a, um, a subtype of uh, uh, dementia, if you like. Indeed. Fantastic. So um, let's move on to the next case, if that's all right. Um, yeah. So the next case is of a 69-year-old um, gentleman of Asian heritage who works as a taxi driver. Um, he has a long history of uh, poorly controlled hypertension, uh, type 2 diabetes, and he presents with um, stepwise decline in his cognition over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you've, you've got the scan there. Yes. So I'm looking at his scan now. Um, this particular sequence is uh, T2 weighted um, axial um, sequence, and it is T2 weighted uh, because CSF is uh, bright and uh, gray matter is gray. Uh, 
uh, white matter you will see in the next few slices later, but it's not clearly demonstrated uh, in this particular scan because it is abnormal. Anyway, the first thing which uh, strikes me is this confluent T2 hyperintensity involving the white matter. Okay, this is very, very abnormal. And as I go lower, I can see this T2 hyperintensity involving the deep and periventricular white matter. What I also see in the midst of this confluent T2 hyperintensity is uh, this sort of well-defined multiple ovoid structures. Okay, these are nothing but infarcts. These are lacunar infarcts. So these are infarcts, old lacunar infarcts, which have evolved due to small vessel ischemia. And you can also see these infarcts in the thalamus. So this is the right thalamus, this is the left thalamus, and you see uh, infarcts involving the thalamus. In addition, there are lacunar infarcts in the pons. So this is a patient with this confluent T2 hyperintensity which is nothing but chronic small vessel ischemia. So this is all chronic small vessel ischemic change uh, leading to this sort of abnormal appearance. And with this uh, background, we have this multiple lacunar infarcts, okay? And this can also be demonstrated uh, very nicely by this particular sequence called the flare sequence on MRI. So when you do MRI, there are several sequences you can apply to answer specific questions. And this particular sequence suppresses fluid signal and can demonstrate pathologies very nicely. And again, you see this uh, white matter confluent abnormality. And on the background, you have this uh, lacunes or lacunar infarcts. We also, when we uh, do an MRI uh, in a patient with um, dementia, we also do this particular sequence, uh, which is called the T2 stir or gradient echo, or uh, a susceptibility weighted imaging sequence. This is very good in demonstrating blood or blood products. Okay, and um, what we see here are multiple tiny microhemorrhages. So these are tiny little dark dots, which are nothing but microhemorrhages. And these microhemorrhages are more, uh, in this particular patient, more concentrated centrally, uh, in his case, uh, in the thalamite, to be precise, okay? So these microhemorrhages are a manifestation of hypertensive microangiopathy. So given the history, and the findings, they all fit together very nicely. Uh, and um, I would say this patient has got vascular dementia. And on the MRI, I could not see any atrophy uh, involving any particular uh, region uh, or any particular lobe, um, but there are widespread changes of small vessel ischemia. Hence, I would say the cause of the patient's dementia is vascular. And right. this is what you see in vascular patient with de uh, vascular dementia on MRI. Excellent. Um, thank you. And yeah, and, and, to, and to reiterate that point, I think that, you know, I think we see a lot of patients who have um, incidental scans, either CTs or MRs uh, for, for various conditions. 
but um, and, and you might find a fair amount of small vessel disease affecting the white matter of those patients. But importantly, um, you know, if they don't have the clinical um, symptoms of, of cognitive impairment, just the presence of small vessel disease on an MR or a CT doesn't necessarily mean that patient is, is bound to have um, a vascular dementia. Precisely. This is an age-related process. So as um, somebody is going growing older, you would expect some small vessel changes anyway. So uh, you have to take that into uh, account. So uh, small vessel changes, some degree of small vessel changes will be present uh, in an elderly individual. Okay, but if you see similar changes in a 40-year-old, uh, that will be abnormal. So age is important. Small vessel changes doesn't necessarily mean that it is abnormal. Age has to be taken into account. Absolutely. Age and age and clinical presentation, super. Okay, um, so to move on swiftly to the next case, if that's all right. Um, so uh, this is a case of a 62-year-old gentleman who uh, works as an accountant, and he presents with um, about a year and a half history of uh, progressive behavioural change. Initially, this started off with him being perhaps a bit more uh, aggressive with his wife, and that was quite out of character for him. And he's been making quite sort of rude and lascivious remarks at various social occasions. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's how he presented to the cognitive clinic. Mm -hmm. So you're presenting to me a, a patient who seems to have some personality changes. Um, and uh, the, I'm just showing you uh, one particular slice, uh, selected slice from the patient's MRI, uh, T2-weighted axial image again. And what I see is a very abnormal um, looking pair of uh, frontal lobes here okay so the frontal lobes are atrophied so are the parietal lobes to a certain extent but what is uh, striking is that there's a great deal of asymmetry in the loss of volume okay so you can see the atrophied right frontal lobe the gyri are very much shrunk there is quite a lot of uh, widening of the sulci but it's more pronounced on the right side compared to the left side. And this is a normal scan um, of a patient uh, of similar age, um, patient in early 60s. And there is a bit of volume loss, background volume loss, which is not uh, uh, out in, uh, you know, not in, it's not disproportionate to the patient's age. Um, but the patient we are talking about has got a lot of atrophy in the frontal lobes and that is asymmetry. So that would be in keeping with frontotemporal dementia. Now, I've shown you a patient who has got frontal lobe atrophy, but a patient with frontotemporal dementia may also have temporal lobe uh, atrophy. Again, asymmetrical, okay? Um, I'll show you the example of uh, something similar in a different patient. So in this patient, you've got loss of volume in the left temporal lobe. So this is the normal looking right temporal lobe. So the sulci are of normal size. You can see nice chunky temporal gyri, but here you can see the sulci are very much widened and uh, there is loss of volume of the gyri. So there is unilateral asymmetric loss of volume of the temporal lobe. Okay, and uh, this is uh, almost uh, a classic appearance of semantic variant of frontotemporal dementia. Okay, so just to give you an example how imaging may help you to 
classify uh, uh, the diagnosis, you know, and that can uh, help you in the therapy and management of the patient. Just compare this with the patient with Alzheimer's disease we discussed uh, first. Um, the changes in the temporal lobes in Alzheimer's disease involved both the temporal lobes and they involve the mesial temporal structures mainly. Here we have got unilateral involvement and yes, there is some loss of volume of the mesial temporal structures, but there is quite a lot of loss of volume of the anterior as well as lateral aspect of the temporal lobes, uh, the left temporal lobe to be precise. So this is again um, uh, a feature of frontotemporal dementia and this particular picture is almost classic of semantic subtype. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and, and really one of the dimensions in which you can even subtype with, with imaging alone, which, which is very handy. Yeah. Um, okay. Can I just uh, mention the utility of functional imaging uh, here as well in frontotemporal dementia? This is from a journal. Uh, so functional imaging, radionuclide imaging, FDG PET in particular might be able to help us differentiate between Alzheimer's disease and uh, frontotemporal dementia here. You see there is good uptake of uh, the radionuclide agent uh, in the frontal lobe, but there is a deficit, reduced metabolism in the parietal lobe. And here it is almost reversed. So there is reduced metabolism in the frontal lobe, but good uptake in the rest of the brain. Um, so this is a patient with frontotemporal dementia. Just to show that uh, my uh, colleagues in nuclear medicine, uh, my colleagues who do radionuclear imaging can help us in narrowing the uh, cause of dementia. Excellent. No, very helpful. Thank you. Um, and, and, I, and I can think of at least sort of one clinical situation in which that would be very useful, obviously, with the primary progressive aphasias. Mm. Sometimes clinically, they can be very difficult to separate apart. And, um, and obviously, it, using using radionuclide imaging would be very handy to separate, for example, sort of semantic variant uh, primary progressive aphasia from from the logopenic variant of Alzheimer's disease. Um, great, great, thank you. Um, so uh, to move on to the next case, if that's all right, it's a very, very busy clinic. We have to get through yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, so our next patient's a gentleman who's a bit old. He's in his um, early 80s, 82 years old, um, and he's actually presented acutely to um, the emergency department uh, due to a drop in GCS. He complained of a, of a headache beforehand and then um, and became very drowsy. And there you have his uh, CT. I'll, I'll, I'll let you take over. Yeah. So um, this patient has presented acutely with a sudden lot, um, drop of GCS. So the imaging of choice here is CT scan because uh, it's quick, readily available. You want to know if there is anything um, uh, life-threatening, uh, anything which can be treated quickly. Uh, so CT is the uh, modality of choice. So we have a CT here. And what does it show? It shows an acute hemorrhage in the left frontal lobe. It has got relatively uh, good amount of uh, mass effect. Uh, there is effacement of the left uh, lateral ventricle. There is a bit of midline shift to the right side. So there is hemorrhage uh, here. But um, this patient, uh, after we discussed with the neurosurgeons, uh, they thought, okay, we probably don't need to do anything 
at the moment will observe and the patient eventually actually did well. It was treated conservatively, but still we didn't know what the cause of the hemorrhage was. Um, after we discussed uh, with uh, the patient's relatives, uh, we found out that uh, he has been showing signs of cognitive decline uh, uh, for some time. Um, and uh, because we don't know what the cause of the hemorrhage is, we thought uh, getting an MRI would be helpful. So um, when we did an MRI, as we uh, mentioned earlier, um, we run several sequences. And this again is a T2 stir sequence, which demonstrates blood and uh, blood products. So it shows the recent hemorrhage. But in addition to that, there are a number of tiny microhemorrhages. Okay, all these tiny dots are microhemorrhages. What is uh, very unique about this is that the microhemorrhages are very peripheral. They are almost at the junction of the gray and white matter. Some of them may almost be in the gray matter. This is in contrast to the patient with vascular dementia, if you remember, Viraj. Yes. That patient had microhemorrhages demonstrated on T2 stir imaging, but those were very central in the thalamine, and uh, that can be in the basal ganglia as well. But here, the patient has microhemorrhages uh, peripherally located. This is consistent with cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Okay, so if you have a patient who presents with hemorrhage uh, with the background of uh, cognitive decline, cerebral amyloid angiopathy has to be considered and MRI, uh, a T2 stir uh, or susceptibility weighting, weighted imaging sequence when demonstrate the sort of peripherally located um, multiple microhemorrhages, okay? In these patients, you may see areas of hemorrhage which are distributed in time and space, which means that you may have areas of hemorrhage which are old, relatively new, or fresh, okay? Those hemorrhages can be intracerebral, as in within the parenchyma of the, um, uh, of the brain. You may also have subarachnoid hemorrhage in fact, these patients may present with subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, and the blood is usually lodged in the convexity sulci, peripherally located. So, um, elderly patient with cognitive decline presenting with hemorrhage, thanks cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Excellent, thank you, and, and really important to make that diagnosis because often by that age in, in the sort of 70s and 80s, a lot of patients are usually on antiplatelet medications or anticoagulant mm. medications and making this diagnosis uh, generally means that it's a preclusion and, and the patient should be taken off uh, antiplatelets and anticoagulants and that has a, a, lot, a big effect on their risk of hemorrhage in the future. Obviously this patient is a, a little bit unlucky and we've caught it after he's had his large low bar hemorrhage, but often we pick up these sorts of cases before they've had a low bar hemorrhage. And the really important thing is to take them off their antiplatelets or anticoagulants to reduce the risk of low bar bleed in, in, in later life. Yeah, that's a very, very pertinent point you have raised. Mm. Excellent, very good. Um, one thing that I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Biswas, um, and I've been caught out by this before, sometimes on these gradient echo imagings or susceptibility weighted imaging or T2 star, um, yeah. I, I, I find that I can see these 
uh, small sort of black dots and I often see them in the cell site and I think I probably uh, misinterpret them as being a microhemorrhage. Some venules can look like this, can't they? Yes, absolutely. So uh, what, you, what we need to do is scroll through the images. So mm -hmm. if you see a dot in the cell site, in a particular sulcus uh, or very close to the cortex, and as you scroll uh, through the images up and down, if you continue to see that dot going uh -huh. up and down, then you know it's not a microhemorrhage, it's a venule. Excellent. Okay. okay. That's, that's very handy. Thank you. The susceptibility weighted imaging, which we do and pretty much uh, done uh, everywhere, they come uh, as volumetric scans. So they, they have a lot of um, slices. So it is easy uh, for us to, you know, just slide through, go up and down and follow these uh, tiny dots. I see. Excellent. Thank you. That will uh, avoid me uh, <laughs> overcalling things in the future. <laughs> okay. So um, our last case for today is uh, a gentleman who's 74 years old, and uh, he presents with a two-year history of um, fluctuating cognitive decline, um, but with very prominent visual hallucinations. Um, over the last six months, he's developed uh, prominent bradykinesia uh, and bilateral tremor, which is why he's presented to the cognitive clinic today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he seems to have uh, a bit of Parkinsonian features as well. Okay. Now, uh, we did a scan on this uh, person, but uh, unfortunately, um, the MRI imaging was pretty much unremarkable. Okay. Mm. There was a bit of uh, generalized uh, volume loss, but that was pretty much in keeping with his age. Uh, we didn't find anything um, out of the ordinary. Mm. The specific sequences like uh, flare or uh, T2 star, SWI didn't show anything abnormal. So I think uh, based on the diagnosis, uh, the clinical um, uh, features, the signs and symptoms you've described, uh, I'm inclined to think that this patient has uh, Lewy body dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies. Yeah. Now, um, the point I'm trying to make here is that in, uh, in this particular case, um, structural imaging probably doesn't have a major role. Okay, mm -hmm. the changes are pretty non-specific. Um, in advanced cases, you may see some generalized volume loss of the brain. Uh, however, uh, functional imaging, my colleagues in the uh, nuclear medicine department, uh, again, can be uh, very helpful in this case uh, to help us uh, narrow down on the differential. So what we can do uh, is uh, what is known as a DAT scan, dopamine transporter scan. Uh, it's essentially a SPECT scan uh, using a particular um, agent uh, called ioflupane123. Uh, now on the left side of your screen is a normal DAT scan. So what it shows is normal uptake of the agent in the striatum. Okay, so uh, the normal uptake is seen as uh, comma-shaped structures, bilaterally symmetrical, okay? But in an abnormal uh, case, a patient who may have Lewy body dementia, because there is depletion of the dopamine uh, transporter, the uptake is also poor. It is asymmetric and uh, nothing like what you see on the right, the comma shape is gone. Uh, there is reduced uptake 
bilaterally more on the left side. So this is uh, compatible with uh, uh, Lewy body dementia. Mm. So uh, that way, um, this particular test has been uh, helpful in narrowing down the differential. And uh, I would strongly favor a diagnosis of uh, Lewy body dementia. Well, very good. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time today, Dr. Biswas. We know it's very valuable. Thank you. We really highlighted some really key points across um, some very common presentations. Um, uh, any any take home messages for, for our listeners out there today before we draw things to a close? Clinical history examination, they're of paramount, uh, they're of paramount importance. I cannot emphasize enough uh, how important they are. Radiology is useful, but radiological investigations do not make the diagnosis. They can help you to establish a pattern. Um, functional imaging can be useful, but as I said uh, previously, uh, they are deserved only for cases where the diagnosis is not uh, very clear. Do uh, consult your radiology colleagues uh, if you have any doubts uh, in picking up the uh, appropriate examination, appropriate uh, technique, appropriate modality. Uh, we are always here to help you. Excellent. So it's all about having conversations between uh, between different specialties. Very good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Biswas. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.